Stefano Domenicali has announced that drivers will be free to take the knee at the pre-race ceremony this year. However, it is expected that not all drivers will choose to do so. Instead, it's believed that Yuki Tsunoda will take English lessons, Nikita Mazepin will take a course in politeness and courtesy, and that Kimi Raikkonen, as he always does, will simply just take the p- Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, she's Sarah. Hello. He's Zog. Hello. And I think we have to start this show by talking about some sad news. Today, the day that we're recording the show, we heard of the passing of former Lotus driver and Le Mans winner, Johnny Dumfries. Also, last week, the passing of Sabine Schmitz, the maestress of the Nürburgring, who, in my opinion, should always have been the next generation Top Gear presenter. And we can't go any further without mentioning the greatest loss to motorsport in many years, and that is the passing of the mighty Murray Walker. Now, Murray was known to us Brits particularly well, and certainly to my generation of motorsport fans. But I need to ask, Sarah, a young woman who grew up in Australia, was Murray Walker known to you out there too? That's a really good question, Gareth, because as I was looking back on all his achievements and the excitement and the joy in which he commentated on Formula One, I really didn't get exposed to Murray Walker. I was, yes, a young girl in Australia. My dad would watch the Formula One regularly and I didn't really get to experience Murray Walker or really get to know who he actually really was until I've now spent time in the UK and he is revered and very much idolised and appreciated man in Formula One. And I think because I have done some reading and some research on the Damon Hill story and I read his book and I know how special Murray Walker is to the Hill family but Murray Walker by the looks and sounds of it he became very special in the entire Formula One world and he had quite a good friendship or camaraderie with sort of not only the drivers but many teams. A friend of mine actually went and interviewed him recently and they wanted to get an interview with Murray before he passed away, which unfortunately has happened. But I do know that he has lived a long and full, joyful life. Yeah, joyful is the word. There is a joy in everything Murray Walker did, really. There was a sort of a twinkle in his eye. You know, some people describe him as a national treasure, but Zog, he was an international treasure, wasn't he? It's interesting to hear Sarah's perspective on this because he was very much a treasure for the English-speaking F1 community and particularly UK fans and viewers because, you know, if you're a fan in Germany or France, you wouldn't be listening to Murray Walker's commentary. And so this is a British perspective on it. Although even if you weren't a native British speaker, the enthusiasm, the excitement (laughs) with which... Murray delivered his commentary you'd know what he was saying even if you couldn't understand a single word exactly yeah good point yeah and it's a measure of his enthusiasm and yes the warmth and the excitement that he brought to his commentary that 20 years after he retired because apart from a brief moment back in the commentary box he retired in I think 2001 that's correct yes his last race was the 2001 US Grand Prix which is probably why Sarah I mean Sarah what you're 22 23 now 
<laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm a bit older than that. But <laughs> I will say I've gone through and watched his highlights and what's most impressive is the 1998 race start. Have you seen that? I think it's the German Grand Prix, perhaps. And all these cars, the, the whole lot of them, every single car got wiped out. Oh, the, the Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, yeah. The Belgian Grand Prix. Oh, the Belgian yeah. Grand Prix. Yeah. That's yeah. it. I mean, and it was... Yeah, that was a, that, that one hell of a <laughs> Yeah, he even yeah, made that sound broken. joyful and exciting. And he said, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I've ever seen in the entirety of his life or his whole yeah. life. I remember that well. Which it probably was. Uh, yeah, <laughs> by, I think you're probably right. By the right. looks of it. His background, though, in the Doctor Who Saves Christmas sketch that we did for Gareth Jones on Speed a couple of Christmases ago, I did an impression of Murray Walker because part of the story was we travelled back in time to meet Murray in the 1950s when he was working in advertising and got him to consider a career in commentary. So we therefore became responsible for (laughs) the Murray Walker that we all know today. But when he was in advertising, some of the clients he had, British Rail, Vauxhall, Mars, and that famous slogan a mars a day helps you work rest and play that was created under murray walker's tenure in advertising he says he didn't actually come up with the words himself but he was in charge of the project he was involved in the campaign that gave us that slogan exactly yeah, no, yeah he had a significant career in advertising and he also came up with trill makes your budgies bounce with health a very famous advertising slogan for budgie food of all things that's how good I, he I was can't say i remember that one. Oh, i do for quite a long time he was combining his advertising career during the week with commentary at the weekend that's right so he wasn't a full-time commentator in his early days and then the two universes blurred later on where he appeared in an advert with Damon Hill. So he sort of became the focus of an advert because he was a commentator. How brilliant. Another one he came up with, opal fruits made to make your mouth water. (laughs) That's a famous one. You don't get that in Australia, Sarah, I'm guessing. No, no. We got the Mars the day. We had that. Yeah. So he did reach internationally. And another one, I had no idea. In the 1960s, he came up with the name, the Vauxhall Ventura, when they had the Vauxhall contract. Originally, it was going to be the Vauxhall Ventura, but General Motors rejected that. So Murray said, well, let's call it the Ventura. And it stuck. So Murray actually named a car. I mean, that's perfect. His first commentary predated Formula One. It was 1949 at Silverstone before we had the modern Formula Mm. One rules. And his last race, as we said, was the US Grand Prix in 2001, which was at Indianapolis. Apart from when he briefly came back, I think he came back for one sort of guest commentary spot on Radio 5 in something like 2005, 2006. I missed that. Oh. I just think he was standing in for somebody. But yeah, it's a measure of just how much warmth he brought to the sport and how much part of the sport he was, that 20 years after that, you know, he is still thought of as a significant figure for so many of us British fans. He was 77 when he retired, and he retired because he'd made a couple of mistakes. He'd misidentified Barrichello for Schumacher in a car, and he felt guilty about it. Someone had written and complained to ITV about it. So he went to talk to the heads of ITV Sport and said, look, I'm a little concerned that I'm making mistakes. I think I should retire at the end of this year. His last win, Mika Hakkinen, and the last words he said were, Mika Hakkinen takes the chequered flag to win the American Grand Prix, a superlatively good victory and is he pleased yes indeed he 
clap, clap, clap. Well done, Mika. He would regularly interrupt himself. That was one of the things. He would change tack in the middle of a sentence. Excuse me while I interrupt myself. He actually said that. It's ironic that for somebody that worked with words in advertising professionally, that one of the things he's best known for is mistakes in his commentary. I mean, not clunker mistakes, but those little sort of slips, you know. Uh, Murrayisms. Uh, you know, with, with half the race gone, there's half the race to go. Or, um, <laughs> you know, the, the young Ralph Schumacher has been upstaged by teenager Jensen Button, who is 20. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> well, it just states the obvious. The best one was, and that car is absolutely unique, apart from the one behind it, which is identical. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure anybody who's done any commentary, which I assume, it's not something I've tried to do, but would sort of recognise that problem of trying to fill airtime and, and ending up saying stuff that you haven't quite thought through enough. Um, <laughs> That's called and, podcasting and Murray these days. <laughs> just managed to come up with these beautiful sort of semi-mistakes that amused us. <laughs> Funny little slips that were all part of his appeal. And yeah, great shame to lose him. We loved Murray. We loved his commentary. He brought so much to the sport. He definitely helped to sort of bring me into the sport, I'm sure, in those early days. We'll miss you. Yeah, we will miss him. We describe him as the voice of Formula One. He had an unbridled enthusiasm, a bubbly, cuddly, round-faced guy. You know, he wasn't a clinical, cold human being, which, you know, sport can be a bit numbers, numbers, stats and data, but he humanised this sport. He helped, in my opinion, make this sport as popular as it is today by communicating the enthusiasm that you can have for a sport like this. He was, like all the greatest commentators, in my opinion, a fan with a microphone. You know, you could just tell, you could hear. Sarah, I almost envy you, someone who didn't know Murray's background, to sort of dig into it and discover all these little gems of things that he said. It's like unearthing a little pot of gold of humour, isn't it? Oh yeah, he's very good. And I think he even brought on Martin Brundle as well, because Martin Brundle has the same sort of talent, doesn't he? Yeah. But I was reading, he said he was telling the world about something that he loved, which was obviously Formula One. And for that, the world loved Murray too. Oh, so, fair point. And I was like, that's quite a good little summary because he really did, as you say, he was a fan. And so he was able to just to tell mm. everybody that the storytelling of what he really, really loved. I mean, he looked like he genuinely loved just being part of it. Yeah, it's reciprocal, that love. I think you've absolutely nailed it. He loved the sport. We loved the sport. We loved him. We loved the sport because we loved him. It's a kind of a cyclical <laughs> diagram, isn't it? A big loving. A big loving for Murray. A big 60s style loving. And it wasn't just Formula One. He would commentate on pretty much any motorsport discipline. He made touring cars exciting. Rallycross. I remember watching him commentating on Rallycross in the 70s on BBC on Saturday afternoons. I've even seen him commentate on a scale-extric race with two players and a simple two-corner circuit. And he made that both exciting and hilarious. <laughs> the man was gifted. He called what he did flashes of the obvious. That's what he did. He came up with flashes of the obvious. Things like... He's in front of everyone in this race, except the two cars that are in front of him. You know, <laughs> Murrayisms, we call them. There's nothing wrong with that car, except it's on fire. <laughs> no, that's the best. Famously. Yes. 
When he said goodbye, it was live on air at the Indianapolis Grand Prix in 2001. I'm just going to quote what he said. I'm a happy, smiling man because what I wanted above all else after 52 years of talking about Grand Prix racing was to go out on a high note and be euphoric about the fact that we've just seen a great race. We've seen a great race, a great country, and hopefully it will have done something to lift the spirits of America. This was shortly after 9-11, of course. And then he became quite tearful. You could just tell there was a croak in his voice. And he said, it's certainly lifted mine. It's lifted the spirits of Formula One. And then there was a pause. So that's it, folks, he said. And he went, "Um," and it's rare that you hear Murray lost for words. That's it from me. That's the last from me. All I can say is that it's always been a pleasure. And I hope you will enjoy Grand Prix racing from now on. I feel quite tearful saying that. Goodbye. Goodbye, Murray Walker. I met him I met him once. The privilege of meeting him once. We were in um hang on, compose myself. Uh, we were in uh, You're doing a Murray. Yeah. We we were in um Malaysia in uh I think it was nineteen ninety nine, Violet and I at the Malaysian Grand Prix. And we were hanging out in the media room with Brundle and Murray and everyone. And the news broke that Ferrari had been found guilty of a technical infringement. Their barge boards were five millimetres too wide and they lost the position. And the whole of the Mm. media room erupted. You know, it was all fizzing with this news. But right at the heart of it was Murray Walker. People were coming to him to ask his opinion. He was talking to people about their opinion. All of Formula One rotating around him. And we had a brief conversation, Violet, Murray and I, and he was more interested in who we were and why we were there and what we were doing than we were about Murray Walker. And he was a hero. You know, that was the sort of magnificent man he is. Someone commented to me recently that maybe Formula One hasn't been as good as it was when Murray Walker was around since Murray Walker left. And there may be something in that. You know, the timbre of his voice matched the V10s, the V12s and the V8s of the age. And since then, it's just not as exciting and as beautiful as it was there. Murray Walker. Yes, we will miss him. His voice defined more than one era of F1 for so many viewers. Is the sport less good than it was when he was commentating? I don't know. It's different. The engines certainly don't sound as exciting as they did when he was delivering fever pitch excitement, even when the cars were standing still. But yeah, we certainly miss having his voice as part of a commentary team. But things move on, and Brundle is a terrific commentator, I have to say. He worked alongside Murray and, yeah, learnt a lot from Murray when they were working together. I mean, he's done an absolutely tip-top job of evolving from a very fine driver to an exceptional commentator. Yeah, and very different skills. Yeah, yeah, so credit to him, he's carrying on the torch in his own way. But, yeah, we will miss Murray and his voice and his enthusiasm. Yeah, it's a great shame we won't hear him again. Sarah, I almost envy you because I think we're heartbroken. I think we're genuinely sad. But um... Oh, I'm sad as well. Yeah. Uh, don't worry about that. Um, but I, I think I didn't live through it the way you guys did. Yeah, yeah. Big part of our lives for a long time, which is why back in 2017, I wrote a song using Zog's music, using Murray Walker's words. And in many ways, I got to duet with Murray Walker in this song. Murray Walker, fantastic, absolutely incredible. 
always impressive and comprehensible. I like it best when Murray said, Fantastic! Yeah, I like it best when Murray said, Fantastic! Yeah, I like it best when Murray said, Fantastic! Absolutely! Absolutely! Absolutely incredible! that we look forward and carry on talking with the great enthusiasm he had for Formula One with a new season beginning. If only Murray was here to enjoy it. Hooray for Formula One distracting us from the closing overtures of this 12 months of lockdown. There have been a few changes as we prepare for the 2021 season, something that is a function of lockdown, curiously enough, or the COVID crisis, is that the FIA 
has changed the basic entry fee to Formula One for this year. Did you know that? They've actually lowered it a bit because they don't have people at races. F1 revenue is down, so they're charging less. This is what it costs now. The basic entry fee is $569,308, which needs to be submitted when you lodge your application to race. Then the World Championship winning team has to pay an extra $6,677 for each point scored during their 2020 World Championship. And for every other competitor, it costs $5,691 for each point. So that needs to be paid the month that the points tally is in. So they've already had to pay that. And there are other changes coming for 2021. The Friday practice sessions are now only 60 minutes instead of 90 minutes. And three times this year, we're going to get a new form of qualifying, which involves a kind of a sprint race, or as F1 is calling it, super qualifying. Sarah, does that appeal to you, the idea of a qualifying sprint race? Well, it does, because Q1, Q2 and Q3, or shall I put it the other way around, Q3, Q2, Q1, it is quite an extensive, long, enduring events to get to the pole position driver. Well, they're still going to do that because I think they'll decide the starting position for the qualifying race from qualifying, which they will run on Friday. Then they'll have this qualifying race on Saturday, which will determine the starting positions for the Grand Prix, the, the big prize race on Sunday. So what are your thoughts? I kind of gave up trying to work out whether it's a good idea or not. So I'm just going to see how it plays out. <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. <laughs> Can you just explain, not just to me, but to other people as well, Tell me a bit more in detail about this super qualifying, the sprint race. How long does it go for? What's it involve? It's one third of the distance of the Grand Prix. That's odd. And as Gareth says, it sets the starting positions for the race on Sunday. And there are also some points up for grabs. I think it's three points for first, two for second, one for third. They've dropped the idea that had been mooted of adding a reverse grid element to it so that's how it's going to work let's just see how it works out because Mm -hmm. for me the current qualifying format works perfectly well it's a well-structured bit of drama it does a pretty good job of what it's i guess supposed to do of putting the fastest cars at the front and the slowest at the back but yeah let's give the sprint races a try and see how they work out one of the reasons i suspect for them having this sprint qualifying race is that research a few years ago showed that people like to watch the start of a grand prix And they watch the last few laps and the finish of a Grand Prix. And quite often during that one and a half to two hours of the race, people go off and have Sunday lunch. They do the washing. They do taking the dog for the walk. And during that time, they are not looking at screens and seeing sponsors' names on screens. So sponsors aren't getting bangs for bucks. And one of the things that they proposed was that a shorter race would keep people watching for the whole time. So by having a shorter rate, you get more eyes screen time. And so sponsors' names get more exposure. Therefore, you get more money in Formula One. You get better bang for your buck on the names, on the wings, and on the sides of the car. And there are two reasons, therefore, in my opinion, for considering the sprint race. One, that, yeah, it will give you more screen time, eye time. And second of all... It's a new sort of random factor because whilst the qualifying session, as you say, Zog, is really very, very good... 
they've kind of got it honed and down pat. And if there's anything that we learned from Formula One last year, that if you put in random factors, circuits where we haven't raced at before or new situations, you get more interesting results. And that's good for the sport. So the idea that we're trying it three times, trying it is good. It may not work. I suspect it might but I'm up for a little bit of change. I think we should always introduce a small change every year. The random factor is a great way of producing new results, isn't it? Yeah, if you throw things up in the air, they're going to fall down just a little bit differently. When the teams don't have a really good, solid basis of knowledge about how this thing is going to play out, how they can run this particular session, this particular event, they're going to be a bit more mixed up. There's going to be a little bit more uncertainty in how everyone's going to perform. So let's see what happens. The season, Sarah, it doesn't start in Australia. That's so sad. Mm. One of the things for me about the start of the Formula One season is the excitement of having to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go and watch the race because, you know, you've been starved of F1. I'm sad that it's not starting Australia for that reason. Instead, we start in Bahrain. In fact, as you're listening to this programme, you've probably already heard the results to the racing because it's imminent. It's this weekend. Then we go to Italy, Portugal in May, Spain in May, Monaco in May. Hooray, we haven't had Monaco for a couple of years. Then Azerbaijan, which you have to say in Tommy Cooper's voice, Azerbaijan. Canada on the 13th of June. 27th of June, the French Grand Prix at Le Castellet. Austria on the 4th of July, just in time for my 60th birthday, the day after. Hint, hint. 18th of July, the UK, Silverstone, where I believe we're going to get one of those sprint qualifying races. August, Hungary. August, Belgium. September, the Netherlands. Zandvoort at last. Oh, I wish I was going to that race. I would like, I may, I, well, I may be able to go to that race. I very much enjoy that. I love the Dutch. Italy in September. Actually, I'd quite like to go to that as well. Russia, Sochi. Less interested in that one in September. October, we get Singapore, Japan, and the USA, and Mexico. So don't book anything in October, right? Those are all big races in October. Then Brazil, the 20th race on the 7th of November. And wait, there are still more races to come. Three more races. November, we get the Australia, Melbourne reshed. December the 5th, Saudi Arabia, and then finally, on the 12th of December, Abu Dhabi, 23 races. Sarah, is that too much? I know. I feel like you need to take a big, deep breath now, Gareth. That was quite a big spill. Yeah. No, it's set to be the longest season in the middle of a pandemic. So I think they're holding their breath because perhaps they've booked a full season expecting that maybe some of them will be cancelled. But let's hope not. Quite possible. Yeah, quite possible. And I think it will be a very competitive season because of these rule changes. I know that all the teams have had to carry over some of their cars or some aspects of the cars from last year. Plus, having to fit into the new sort of aerodynamic rules. Am I correct? Yeah. Without being an expert on what the aerodynamic new rules are. But I know that's their differences. And I think that's why for the testing that's just happened in Bahrain, that's why Mercedes haven't performed as well as what I think they could have. And they're earmarking Red Bull to go one ahead. Yeah, yeah. Which could be interesting. And then the rest of the pack, hopefully, will be quite tight. Yeah, I think you've absolutely summed it up. You've nailed it. That's exactly have right. I? Yeah, you really <laughs> there have. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Mercedes were unusually panicked 
I think, by testing, weren't they, Zog? They weren't as clearly confident and they had quite a lot of rear instability. Or am I reading too much into testing? Well, I wouldn't use the word panic. It takes a lot to panic Mercedes. Fair point. They're a remarkably professional, sorted outfit. But they certainly didn't have the pre-season testing they might have wanted. Yeah, they were having handling problems and the car wasn't behaving as they would have liked. Red Bull were looking quicker. Whether Red Bull are going to look quicker at the end of the season, I really doubt that. I think the way it looks on the basis of those three testing days to me is that yeah, at the start of the season, it's going to be even between Red Bull and Mercedes, with Red Bull probably having the advantage. But over the course of the season, Mercedes will be quicker. And I think while he will have a tougher fight this year, Hamilton will win the title over almost inevitably second place Verstappen. And then behind them, yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a bit of tightening up of the field. McLaren, again, look like they've made some good progress and they're going to be a pretty solid contender this year. They've got a terrific driver lineup in Norris and Ricardo. I hope they're going to work well together. They're certainly both terrific guys, and Norris has been getting a lot out of that car. They seem to have made good steps forward, and, yeah, I'm excited to see what they're going to do this year. Okay, let's go through the grid in terms of position and try and work out who we think is going to prevail. We'll start with the perennial back end of the grid. I hate saying this, but it is Williams at the moment. Williams and Mercedes. Nicholas Satifi, number six. George Russell, number 63. And today, Jost Capito, who is now the team principal at Williams, announced that a chap who used to work with him at Volkswagen's World Rally Championship team has joined the team as technical director. And there's me thinking, yeah, well, this guy, FX, they call him. His name is Francois Xavier de Maison. They call him FX for short. I'm thinking, yeah, well, there's a big difference between running a WRC car and running an F1 car. That's quite hard. But then I realised that FX was actually one of the people, if not the man, responsible for the VW... IDR, that incredible electric car. Oh, the Pikes Peak car. That clobbered Pikes yeah. Peak, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's pretty yeah. bang up to date with technology as well. So he may make a difference at Williams. Heck, they need a difference. Well, also, one thing that caught my eye was that Williams said that the way they've gone with this year's car, and we should be looking at a fresh restarted Williams this year with a new investment and new team yeah. and new people. But one thing that caught my eye was that they said that the way they've developed the car for this year is such that it'll be quite a polarised car. It's going to be quite poor at some tracks. <laughs> Ain't that true, brother? But then there'll be some conditions, some tracks, where it's going to really come into its own. Now, for a team like Williams that has been at the back of the grid and just never scoring any points for a while, that's a good way to go. Rather than to just edge your average performance up and have a consistently slightly better performance, to have a car that's going to be significantly better at just a couple of races and then terrible at the others it's actually a better way to go in terms of your prospects for getting any points well particularly if you're at the back of the grid you've got nowhere to fall further back have you this is precisely my point that if you're right at the back of the grid just edging up from 10th place to 8th place team wise from finishing 19th and 20th to finishing 14th and 15th doesn't do you any good 
if you carry on finishing 19th and 20th at every race, but then there are just a couple of races where you're getting cars into the top 10, then you're scoring points. So if Williams have that kind of race swings and roundabout kind of car that comes into its own under some conditions, and they've then got the reliability to take advantage of the opportunities when those conditions present themselves, then they've got a chance to do what they haven't done in the last couple of years, getting some points in the bag and impressing us rather more than they have done because they've fallen a long way from the Williams of old who are a championship winning team with a terrific pedigree. Sarah, next team, Haas, Ferrari with Nikita, Marzipan we'll call him, Mazabin, number nine's his race number, and Mick Schumacher who races with the number 47. I'm not sure what the significance of that is for him. Perhaps that was the number he raced with in F2. They've already written the season off really, haven't they, Haas, Ferrari? Because they're basically using last year's car and are already putting what limited resources they have into developing next year's car. Are they going to slip behind Williams? I guess I'm asking Sarah what do you think well I actually watched an interview this morning with Mick Schumacher and he's hopeful that they'll end the season better than the way they start so he's hopeful that they will start the year reasonably well and that they will carry on and try and finish then the way they started so he's obviously very excited to be in Formula One he said he doesn't feel any pressure whatsoever to be Michael Schumacher's son but I think in light of perhaps their difficulties, I think they want to try and stay consistent. So whether that means that they stay above Williams or they try and just go on better from the way they begin a season to the way they finished, it sounds like they'll be happy and I think that's what their goals are. So you never know. Watch this space. I want Mick to clobber Mazepin. I don't like Mazepin. I don't mind saying that out loud. And I really like Mick Schumacher. I've said this before. I wasn't a fan of his father. I can see that Mick Schumacher is a sweet, gentle, caring, communicative young man. Perhaps probably what making a killer driver. You know, you need to have a bit of an edge to you. Maybe he has. We haven't seen it yet. Okay, next team, Zog Alfa Romeo Ferrari. Kimi Raikkonen in his 11,000th season in Formula One. Antonio Giovinazzi, number 99. Actually, Kimi should race with 99 because he likes an ice cream, doesn't he? That would be a much better number for him. Yeah, you wonder whether he's really more interested in ice cream than F1 these days. <laughs> it feels like they're at a point where they could do with shaking up their driver lineup. Kimi, terrific though he has been, he has fewer of those days when he's obviously engaged and into his racing, which is what he really needs to perform. He's taking it a bit too easy these days. This is surely his last year in F1. Giovinazzi's not bad. He's a fine driver but he's never going to be a star. So, yeah, I don't think Alfa Romeo have really got what it takes this year to impress us. The car's still looking good. It's a little bit less red, a little bit more white than it was last year. Still a looker, but, yeah, I don't think there's any magic sauce there to lift them this year. I found out the answer, by the way, to whatever happened to the C40, because, you know, last year's car was the C39, and this year's car is the C41. Apparently, the C40 was the car that they were already developing for this season before the rules changed. So now I guess they're going to apply that chassis number to next year's car. So they're going to go 39, 41, 
then back to 40 for next year. Confusing? No. Yeah, because they kind of put the engine reg changes off a year, yeah. delayed those changes by a year, so that's messed with various, well, messed with McLaren's schedule. They had to put a different, you know, had to yeah. redesign their car for this year to accommodate a different engine. Next team, Sarah Alpine Renault, Esteban Ocon, number 31, and Fernando Alonso, race number 14. They're in reasonable shape, aren't they? Well, I read that Fernando Alonso has just slipped back into the Formula One like he never left. So, yes, perhaps they are just in good shape. And I don't think there'll be a huge amount separating that middle pack. So I guess it's hard to predict how they're all fair in terms of like McLaren, Aston Martin, Alpine, Ferrari now. They're in the middle of the pack. Alpha Tori. And then obviously Hassan Williams, they might be towards the back. But I'm not going to predict where Alpine will finish. But I do know that, yeah, they look to be fit, shall we say. Yeah, well, it is going to be hard to separate McLaren from Alpine from Alpha Tauri. They're all going to be scrabbling over the same bit of circuit and it will ebb and flow depending on circuit by circuit, in my opinion. But overall... I've got to say my money's on McLaren this year because they were oh, already... Oh, I'd love to see McLaren do well. <laughs> yeah, of course. I think we all would. I think Zog <laughs> I and I historically are McLaren fans. We know why you're a McLaren fan. That's obvious and we support that. And I want McLaren to do well because I don't like to see any grandee collapse in the way that they did. They were already on the march and now they've got a better engine than they had last year. Not that there was too much wrong with the Renault engine, but we know the Mercedes is a good block, despite the fact that Williams don't seem to be able to make it work. McLaren surely will. Okay, cracking on. Alpha Tauri Honda. Now, I'll make an observation about this before I throw it to you, Zog. Pierre Gasly, number 10, and Yuki Tsunoda. I'm not sure what number he's racing under, but there was an awful lot of attention given to Tsunoda-san, or Yuki-san, during testing in Bahrain because he was outstandingly quick. And everyone's going, oh, quickest Japanese driver ever. Yeah, but analysis of the data shows that he was opening DRS much earlier and closing it much later than he would be allowed or indeed any other cars on that circuit were doing. So I'm not saying he's cheating, but I'm saying he's doing stuff that wouldn't be allowed in the race to make him appear quicker. Any good, Zog? Sonoda? Gasly? Well, yeah, Sonoda does look like a pretty good prospect. Yep. Let's see. We've got an F1 season coming up in which he can show us what he can do. I think he's going to be pretty impressive. He's done well in the junior formulae and he was looking good in his first F1 three-season testing. So, yeah, he looked in good shape. And Alpha Tauri, they got a lot of testing done. The car's reliable. They've incorporated a fair bit, including, I think, the steering from last year's Red Bull. I didn't know that. Yeah, but they're not using the dodgy Red Bull gearbox from last year. So there's a good chance they can take a step forward this year. It would take something remarkable for Gasly to have another win well you never know though with the rule changes and the pack being quite tight you never know who'll end up on the podium yeah i think it's going to take another remarkable set of circumstances to catapult yeah. gasly or sonoda to the front like that but yeah you never know we do get extraordinary races from time to time it's fantastic when they happen so 
let's see. So I think Alpha Tauri are a decent prospect for this year. I think I'm expecting a bit of a step forward. I think Tsunoda is definitely the cutest driver in Formula One. Have you seen him? He looks like a J-pop manga character. He's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> I'm concerned Violet's going to run away with him. That's how cute he is. Gasly's got a bit of a manga character feel to him, actually. Okay. You know, kind of got a big eyes yeah. and, you know... They're the cartoon team, aren't they? Cardish face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Aston Martin Mercedes. Now, we didn't mention them earlier on when we were talking about the centre pack, you know, McLaren, Alpine, Alpha Tauri, Sebastian Vettel, number five, Lance Stroll, number 18. They didn't look in testing as confident as the Racing Point car was last year. No way, no. Sarah, do you reckon Stroll is going to walk over Vettel or will Vettel refind his mojo this year with this new team? I say new team. Vettel is renowned for a lot of unforced error, isn't he? So if yeah, he, he, he control that, I think he'd probably get the better of Lance Stroll. And Lance Stroll might be able to learn a few things from Sebastian Vettel, seeing as though Sebastian Vettel is a veteran now. So Fair point. We'll see how it works out. Lance Stroll, we take the mick out of Lance Stroll because his dad owns the team. But actually, to be fair, he's a much better driver than we give him credit for. I think he's all right, Lance Stroll, in the end. He's a grumpy little so-and-so. I'll give him that much. Yeah, that is. I think, I mean, both Vettel and Stroll, for both of them, their weakness is mental. Stroll's a very fast driver, but he's not consistent and he's sort of mentally fragile and maybe has some slight issues with self-confidence. But Vettel also, despite being a four times world champion who can clearly deliver, he's often found himself in a state of mind where he can't or where he's, as you say, Sarah, prone to too many unforced errors. So for both of them, it's all about the mental game and they need to have their heads together to deliver the maximum. And yeah, right now it looks like that Aston Martin could be a pretty quick car, but they've got a lot of issues to sort out before they can get the most out of it and before they're going to get it reliably to the finish. Got to hit the ground running to be competitive in Formula One. That's what Red Bull are aiming to do this year. Now, we've talked about McLaren Mercedes already, but we'll have a quick comment from each of you on them. Daniel Ricciardo versus Lando Norris with conveniently close numbers. Ricciardo's number three. Norris races under number four. Sarah, I don't even need to ask you, who's going to come out on top of those two? Danny or Lando? Well, I'd like to see Daniel Ricciardo get on top, but Lando Norris is a very talented young driver, isn't he? Yeah. He's exceptional when it comes to esports and the simulator, and he's proved that over last lockdown or throughout the last 12 months. I don't know how involved Daniel Ricciardo is when it comes to esports, but he alone is a proven, tried and tested, reliable, consistent, very good driver. So I think they might even be equally paired. But at this point, I'd probably give Daniel Ricciardo the edge. <laughs> of course you will. Sarah, I love the way that you have enough spare brain capacity to concentrate fully on podcasting, Formula One, and do your nails at the same time. You're <laughs> my you kind of person. I was doing that. <laughs> I am shot, aren't I? Yes. No, these are sitting here with my nails are sitting here. And I was like, you know what? I can probably do it because I've got all the information in front of me and I'm talking to both of you. And <laughs> No, but I'm listening. <laughs> Very we hard. can tell you're completely with the programme. Brilliant. Right, for Ferrari, Zog, we have uh, Charles Leclerc, number 16, Carlos Sainz Jr. Can't call him Jr. anymore. Carlos Sainz, number 55. Carlos, he'll get close, but I don't think he'll match Charlie Clark, who I think is extraordinary. But the big question here is, will Ferrari have made reparations? Will they have fixed the problems that they've had for the last 12 months 
principally with their engine and the rear instability of their car. What do you reckon? Well, it looks like they have sorted out a lot of engine issues and they've kind of gone over the hump of last year when they had the blow of, I mean, it's not entirely clear what happened, but it's pretty obvious they were skating at least very close to the edges of the regulations in terms of what you could do with burning extra oil and some electronic tricks to do with fuel flow management. I think you put that very kindly, Zog. Well, yeah, I mean... You they know, cheated. <laughs> they may well have been cheating. They were certainly pushing the regulations, and they certainly came to an agreement to stop doing whatever it was they were doing, and they suddenly got slower when they did that last year. They've got over that little hump now. They've got a better engine in the car and so they should be a lot better this year than they were middle of last year. Leclerc is exceptional. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Science is going to have a very hard time. He's not going to measure up to Leclerc, I think. Leclerc's just too good. He really is exceptional. Science is terrific. Yeah. But he just hasn't got that extra something that Leclerc has. Leclerc has delivered so many of those terrific performances as a relatively inexperienced driver so yeah i don't think ferrari are really going to be scrapping much with mercedes and red bull for the top spot but they'll be scrapping it out for third with probably mclaren most of the races okay it sounds to me that we've already made up our minds all of us about this so let's discuss the top two teams in a sort of compare and contrast situation the top two teams are Red Bull Racing Honda, Max and Sergio versus Valtteri and Lewis in the Mercedes. I think Sergio coming to Red Bull Racing will actually help the entire team. It will force Max to raise his game, and his game is already pretty high. And theoretically, it will put them into the sphere of Mercedes and will be a tighter race this year than it was last year. Sarah, do you think that Red Bull Racing are going to be able to take it to Mercedes this year? I think they will, genuinely, only because of the rule changes. The fact that Mercedes have had clear problems in testing and I think Honda are also putting all their eggs in the Formula One basket this year because it's their last year. The competition that Max Verstappen has with Perez that might help you know ramp things up yeah but in saying that Mercedes does have a history of always being able to come back and recover from any of their issues so it could be evenly matched but wouldn't it be great if another team got up over Mercedes, you know, just this once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just for the sake of change. Zoggy? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be Hamilton and Mercedes for the Drivers' and Constructors' Championship, but it's going to be a tough fight with Red Bull, particularly at the start of the season. That's what I'm expecting. Much as it was a shame to lose Albon from Red Bull, I feel great joy that Perez got himself a frontline seat. Yeah. And he's going to be a very strong and stable counterpart to Verstappen. You know, he's going to be a much tougher teammate than he's had in the last couple of years. So, yeah, I expect we're going to see some good results from Perez. You know, he may pick up a win or two. If Verstappen has issues and we're in the phase of the season where Red Bull have an edge over Mercedes, but he would need an edge over Mercedes to beat Lewis for sure. I reckon... We're going to see a falling out at Red Bull later this year. I think it will start well, but I think Perez will be closer to Max than Max would like it. I'm not saying overall, but they will be on the same piece of track a lot of the time during the race. Ultimately, Max will be quicker, I think. But I think it'll all be sweetness and light until 
Max starts to feel that he's not getting favoured anymore on certain occasions and they might fall out. That's my prediction for the year. No more speculation. In fact, we don't need to speculate anymore because racing starts this weekend. We have at Bahrain the first of 23 races. I cannot wait. Although... I will have to wait because on Friday, during the practice sessions, I've got my first vaccination jab booked. So I'm going to miss one of those sessions and have to come back and watch it on rerun. But until then, by the way, you guys, would you like to convene next week to do a quick short roundup and review of the first race? Are you available? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Super. We'll do that. So we'll have a bonus extra short episode of Gareth Jones on Speed looking back at the first race of the season. Hooray! So until next week, it's goodbye from Zog. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. See you next week. See you guys. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!